0: Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome
1: to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, Or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert.
2: Welcome to Museum Life. This is Carol Bossert. I'm so glad you've joined us today. Today, we are going to be talking about historic houses again. Uh, some of you may remember that a couple of weeks ago, I had a great conversation with Frank Vagnoni, uh, who is uh, penning a book with the wonderful name called The Anarchist Guide to Historic Houses. Uh, that's going to be published uh, in just a few months by Left Coast Press. And as often happens, uh, one of the most wonderful things I think that happens with this show is that I do one uh, program about a topic and then I find lots more wonderful guests to continue with this uh, t- same topic, and that's exactly uh, what has happened today. You know, historic houses are fabulous assets to our community. Uh, many of them are very small. They have very small staffs. They uh, they have all sorts of challenges in addition to having relevant interpretation. They can have leaky roofs and, and all sorts of things, but they are one of probably our greatest museum assets of being in the community. And today we have some uh, wonderful guests to talk about how they are pos- positioning historic houses in. in to continue to be relevant in the 21st century. Now, my first guest today is Heather Meltzler, who is principal with Bow Bridge Communications in New York. Uh, they work within the arts and cultural sector, promoting a variety of institutions, foundations, and programs, and Heather's going to talk with us today a little bit about some of uh, her projects and the overview of sort of the landscape that she sees of historic homes. So Heather, uh, welcome and thank you for being on the show today.
3: Well, it's it's a great honor to uh, to be joining you. Thanks so much for having me.
2: Heather, uh, knowing that uh, many of our listeners are uh, emerging museum professionals, we have many I have many great listeners who are uh, still in uh, museum studies programs, working on their master's degrees. Could you just share a little bit about your professional background and how you got to where you are today?
3: Of course. Um, I actually started out with an art history degree and um, really got started in the curatorial world. Uh, I was actually curator of art for the city of Toronto for 10 years and managed what was more of an archival collection. Uh, But I um, also worked at at a number of other smaller institutions in Canada but on the curatorial side, so on the institutional side. And then when I was in my mid-30s, I decided to move over to more of the project management side and communication side um, of the institutions that I worked with, got into a little bit more of of development and um, just decided that I was going to move more into that side of things than into curatorial. So I eventually... um, when I was doing the curatorial work um, at the City of Toronto, I also worked with their Public Art Commission and um, also worked on a number of projects with them. Probably the most important was the bid for the '96 uh, Summer Olympics. And so working with uh, a lot of the cultural leaders in the city to put together the cultural bid for that uh, Olympics. Uh, led me to realize that there were wonderful opportunities to network in the community and to basically move beyond what I was doing territorially. So I ultimately uh, opened my own PR firm in um, the early 90s and uh, worked with a number of uh, clients, including the Samuel and Sadie Bronfman Family Foundation in Montreal. I worked with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in Toronto. I also worked with the Interior Design Show, which was a a consumer trade show uh, basically focused on interior design products and services, and then that led to working with... another broadcaster, Global Television, uh, to design or to create a design channel and then uh, working with House and Home Media, which is sort of the equivalent of of Martha Stewart's Omni Media. And so it was, I kind of moved from dealing with uh, art in a very scholarly way into dealing more with sort of culture and lifestyle. And uh, I ultimately moved to New York in 2006 uh, when I remarried and uh, met my partner, Libby Mark. We are partners in our firm, Bowbridge Communications. And um, so we set up our firm in about two and a half years ago, but we've been working together for about eight years. And we have quite a range of clients. There's uh, We have worked with galleries and museums and foundations, publishers, uh, film producers, um, I'm just trying to thank some of the other people. And just, you know, individual short-term projects. And it's really great because it's sort of a nice range of um, programs that we get to work with, budgets. A lot of our clients are, you know, scattered across the United States, so it's great for us to be able to uh, work with them and, and for them to kind of have a New York toehold uh, with us. So
4: that's well, I
2: think kind of that where is,
3: it all came from.
2: <laughs> that's a fabulous story, and thank you for sharing it. I never get tired of, of hearing about how we all came to be where we are. And <laughs> no. and uh, No, I, I think it's great. And it, it also underscores something that I've been thinking about recently, and that is there are so many wonderful uh, uh, organizations, consulting firms that uh, are can help museums and and historic homes, which you were talking about today. Mm-hmm. And so many of the principals, like you, really came up through the ranks of being in a museum. So you bring that understanding uh, to your clients as well. And I am sure that that's what has uh, led to much of your success. Uh- well, I, yeah,
3: because I think they appreciate that we we know the world that they're, they're living in, they're working in, they're, you know, in some cases struggling with, and we, we've been there. Right. So it, it, it's a lot easier for us to give them advice and to try and work them, you know, walk them through how they can uh, better um, launch a program or or better get their message across. And so, yeah, I, I, I think it does help. And, and my partner Libby also comes out of an institutional background. So she's, She's very much aware of um, what we're getting into when we step up to the plate.
2: Great, great. Well, let's talk about uh, some of the uh, projects that you have been involved with. Um, I know that you've worked with the Frist and the National Museum of American Jewish Heritage. Uh, You and I have talked about those before. Uh, So I think it would be helpful uh, just to talk about some of the uh, challenges that your clients bring you and how you help them uh, meet those
3: challenges. Well, I think what, what we typically find is that um, uh, people come to our firm because, for the most part, they are looking for national uh, exposure for either it could be uh, a new gallery opening, it could be uh, you know a building expansion project, it could be a special exhibition, um, it could be the announcement of a, uh, you know, a new um, senior position, uh, but in, for the most part, they're looking for us to get them national exposure, because in many cases, they have already established, a, you know, a very strong rapport with their local and regional media. So they, they don't really need us to help them with that. But many, in many cases, that's the extent of, you know, of their reach. And, and they want to sort of announce things to a bigger public. So that's usually why, we're, why we are brought in. Um, the Frist, for example, is uh, uh, an institution that is, they do not have a permanent collection, so they have a really robust um, exhibition program. And so we sit down with them at the beginning of the year and we look at the the exhibitions they've got planned to see which ones might have the most um, national reach, and, and in many cases international reach. And one of the things that the Frist has done, which I... I I think is something that you know is is a sort of shareable uh, moment, if you will, for many of the uh, people listening to this program is they have really gone out of their way to um, engage their community in programming, uh, for example, they did a uh, an exhibition about a year or so ago. It was a combination of uh, work by uh, Francisco de Goya, which was these war images that he had done in the early 19th century, the, the war between Spain and France, and then they paired that with an exhibition by uh, a contemporary artist whose name is Steve Mumford, who, um, uh, it was called War Journals, and he uh, he documented uh, tours in Iraq and Afghanistan and Guantanamo um, as an artist. and. What they did with these two exhibitions was they reached out to the veterans community in Nashville and and brought in so many um, veterans to talk about what their own experiences had been. And it became this kind of, you know, weekly wrap session, if you will. It, it became so successful that um, it just continued throughout the course of the exhibition. So they really tried to connect very, you know, directly with uh, vets who who they felt would really uh, benefit from having the experience of um, seeing these two exhibitions. And then on a completely different note, they worked with, they had an exhibition of Italian Renaissance art from the Dominican and Franciscan orders, and they brought in a a choral group who actually uh, recorded music that was part of, uh, in part, in some of the imagery that was included in the exhibition, they actually recorded these hymns that came from illuminated manuscripts and used them in their audio guide. So, I mean, just really creative ways to engage your community, and um, and obviously, from our perspective, really wonderful things to be able to, to talk about with the press. So, so they are, uh, they've been a, a wonderful group to work with, and and the other thing that we try to do with uh, with them is whenever, for example, whenever their executive director is traveling or the uh, director of communications, we try to make sure that we can you know connect them with journalists across the country if they have time in their travels to do so, so it, it gives them that opportunity to reach out as well.
2: Those are uh, really good examples. Do you have one more?.
3: Um, Yeah, I think uh, the the, the one group that we've really just had such a great time with is Visit Philadelphia. Um, They are a tourism marketing uh, organization for the city of Philadelphia, but they took on a a two-year program, I guess it's maybe almost a three-year program now, um, which was called With Art, and they... Uh, because when the Barnes Foundation finally opened on the Benjamin Par- Franklin Parkway in 2012, I think the city really saw that it was an opportunity to reposition itself as a major cultural destination. Um, I think people think of Philadelphia as a wonderful place to go to for uh, American history and colonial history, um, and, but you know they have such a significant uh, number of cultural organizations that are really doing spectacular work that they decided it was time to shine the spotlight on them. So they enlisted uh, the support of the Philadelphia Museum of Art, uh, the Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, the Barnes, um, UPenn Museum, and uh, also the uh, Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. So this These five institutions pooled their resources and brought us in to basically try to raise the profile of Philly as a cultural destination. And so we were charged with bringing in journalists who wrote about arts and culture, organizing press trips, organizing luncheons in New York to bring the message to them here. And uh, the city got just a significant amount of coverage uh, in the time that we worked on the project. And, again, it's the kind of thing that a lot of other cities could do because they've got, you know, they may have a museum and a, and a ballet company or an opera company or a theater company or or just a cluster of really great uh, cultural assets. And if they start to pool their resources and start to promote themselves as um, you know a real reason to visit that community it just lifts up the whole community in other words there's no reason for them to be kind of siloed in each of their respective areas and not want to kind of share the uh, the wealth as far as marketing and um and outreach goes. It really helps if they pool it, and and I then think the one that's up- a
2: really important message. And and uh, I'm sorry, I'm cutting you short that's on okay. that that <laughs> uh, story. But we're going to have to go to break in just a uh, two minutes. And I really want you to uh, talk a little bit about the Path Through History project.
3: Oh, definitely, yes, would love to. Oh,
2: um, why do uh, so? So why don't we talk a little bit about it now, and then we'll go to break.
3: Oh, great. Okay. Well, I. Um, when uh, about a year or so ago, the state of New York uh, initiated a program called Path Through History, which is uh, an, an effort to promote the sort of co- the historic properties um, statewide. And um, I love New York; their their tourism um, agency got behind this, and there were ten work groups established across. The state and the city of New York was a work group in and of itself. And they um, did an RFP asking for public relations firms to come aboard to try and help them promote uh, historic properties across the five boroughs. So our firm was selected, and uh, we worked with them to try to identify uh, sites across, you know, in the five boroughs that we felt initially had been perhaps considered lesser-known sites, and uh, there was no reason for us to promote people going to the Statue of Liberty, even though it's a fantastic historic site in New York City, Um, but to direct them to a place like the Morris Jumel Mansion, where our friend Carol Ward is situated, um, or the Louis Armstrong House, these are just absolutely wonderful historic properties in the city that are not necessarily on tourist radar. So we wanted to try and put a spotlight on those. So we uh, did that through a social media campaign, through press releases, and um, through basically engaging with the sites to work with the bigger Path Through History program, uh, which enabled them to promote their properties through the Path Through History website. And what we did was uh, we actually looked at uh, we, had, we, only had, we had less than a year to, to work on the project, but we started out by identifying essentially these sort of hidden, gem, hidden gems across the five boroughs. The second push was to uh, recognize outdoor sites across the boroughs uh, where there was access to parkland or to waterfront uh, opportunities, again, all historic. And then I believe in the fall we did a colonial sites um, push, which included churches, burial grounds, taverns, you know, Quaker meeting houses, forts. Uh, and you know, qu- quite quite an array of colonial uh, properties in, in New York City, which I don't think people really think of the city that way.
2: No, I certainly don't. That's <laughs> fabulous. That is just fabulous. Yeah, and and then we just when we come back from break, Christmas. we're we're going to be talking uh, with uh, some of these people that you've worked with, including uh, the Louis Armstrong Museum and the Morris Jumel Mansion. Uh, but we are going to have to take a quick break now. Uh, Remember, you can always contact me at carol.bossert at verizon.net. Let me know what you think about the show and what issues you think we should be discussing. And so we will be back in a minute. Stay tuned. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life.
5: (laughs) Families today face unique challenges. Marriage, parenting, and family forms have changed a lot in the last century. Family Matters with Dr. Virginia Collin. You're
1: tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at Verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life.
2: Welcome back. This is Carol Bosser. You're listening to Museum Life. And today we are talking uh, with people who think outside the box when it comes to historic houses. And my next guest is Jennifer Walden, who is the director of marketing for the Lewis Armstrong House Museum. And uh, I, I know after you hear Jennifer, you are, will agree with me that she is also one of the hidden gems in, uh, in New York. So, uh, Jennifer, again, uh, just as I ask Heather, could you just briefly give a little bit about your professional background and how you ended up where you are?
4: Sure. Um, actually, when I look back at where my, how my career has, end, has brought me here to the museum, um, it makes so much sense, but I think looking back and seeing who I was when I graduated college, I would never have guessed I've ended up at the Louis Armstrong House Museum. I was a history major in college and thought, for sure, I'm going to law school. That's exactly what I want to do. Um, But it wasn't. And I started uh, my first job out of college. I was a media buyer, a junior media buyer with an agency, and found my way through the media entertainment industry. I spent almost 10 years with Liberty Cable in New York City, marketing cable, television, programming services to New York City residents um, in competition with this company, you might have heard of them, Time Warner Cable. And we were one of the first markets where there really was real competition. So that was an exciting opportunity to really learn about who our audiences could be, should be, who our customers were. And my career developed through the years. And as I had kids and sort of reconnected with the things that I'm passionate about, which is arts and culture, I found my way doing some pro bono work for some local arts organizations and then getting hired as a consultant for them and then as a strategic marketing director for some of them. And then, full circle, here I am at the Lewis Armstrong house museum
2: well you 're right. Uh, you ended up at the right place uh, with and you have brought all of those varied experiences to the work that you 're doing now and uh, now I understand a little bit more how you've you 've created uh, and developed your uh, uh, your philosophy. Um, could you just tell our listeners a little bit more about the Louis
4: Armstrong House Museum? Absolutely. We're located in C- Corona, Queens, New York. Um, it is the home of Louis Armstrong, the only home that he had ever owned. Uh, they, he and his wife Lucille bought the home in 1943. They lived here until he passed in 1971, and later she passed in 1983 here. And so she had the fourth site to leave the house, the home, and its contents to the city of New York to take care of it and to help build a legacy for her husband out of the house. So now when you come here, flash forward, um, this house is one of New York City's House That Rocks. That's something I like to say about the museum and maybe not something you typically say about Historic House Museum, Um, but it tells the story of Lewis's career. He is, looking back where we are today, clearly he's a strong cultural icon. And so, this home, and your tour through the home um tells that story. He comes alive right here, and i don 't ever tire of being on a tour um i 've been on many tours since i started here with the organization in two thousand and eleven, and I still get teary eyed watching folks' reaction when they hear lewis 's voice come out of the walls to speak to them
2: wow yes um that 's a that is Sounds very interesting. And next time I'm in Queens, I'm going to stop by. Um, you must. I will. I will. Uh, I just. I do find this fascinating too. That that uh, we always tend to think of historic homes as you know something in the 17th or 18th century with you know all all sorts of gilt uh, furniture and f- uh, expensive paintings and things, and uh, it, sort of it, living a lifestyle that we could never dream about. And here is uh, an individual who has made a lasting impression on uh, our country and what it means to be an American. And it was very and continues to be a very modest uh, home, uh, something that maybe any of us could be living in.
4: It's true, and I think that's why the story at our, at this museum is so powerful because you can, you can see his life as just a regular person, as part of the community, and it was very important to Lewis and Lucille to be a part of the community. They shared ice cream with the kids on the street. They didn't have children of their own, and though those stories come alive through the museum besides the story of of how he felt about the recordings that he had made that had made him so famous in in music. And so it's that juxtaposition of the public um, view of this, this icon and then this home this man of his house and, and just wanting to have a great life and comfortable living. He could have lived anywhere in the world. He could have had a trumpet shaped pool out in the Hamptons, but he chose Corona Queens. Um, it was a working class neighborhood and it still is today. Um, and so when you walk here, I, you see folks' faces walk up the block when um, they come from the subway and they're trying to, you know, where am I, especially if there are foreign visitors, um, and they find the home. And when they leave, the house, their faces are so different because this, their experience at this museum transformed them and changed them and made them feel something very different than when they got here.
2: I can, I can just imagine. Now, Jennifer, when you and I um, spoke earlier, you just had such a great way of sort of expressing your strategy for success that you apply to the Louis Armstrong Museum. Would you mind
4: sharing that with our, our uh, listeners? No, of course not. I mean, I think the the real the- For us, the real story is, what is your story? Who do you want to tell it to? Who is coming to visit you? How are they getting to you? But what is your narrative? Find that story, find that tone, and communicate it. And you can communicate it in all sorts of different ways. I don't think it matters the size of your marketing budget or how many folks you have employed with the organization or how many volunteers you have. You need to find a way to get your story out there. And it could be from simply partnering with local, community, local organizations. Um, for example, um, we are limited to our, our core program here, I should say, is the historic house tour. That being said, it's a National Historic Landmark. It's a New York City landmark. Um, there's no room in this house for me to show a film screening for more than maybe 20 people, for example. Um, so anything that I do maybe needs to be done outside when the weather is cooperative, and that's a little hard to, to uh, predict Sometimes, so the best thing for us to do is to find partners in our community, sort of increase our reach by tapping into their audiences and their databases, as well as allowing them to tap into ours to promote this this great program together. And we just hosted an International Jazz Day program at the Museum of Moving Image here in Queens, in, in Astoria, and we showcased for the first time ever here in the United States uh, a record only full surviving recording that we know of Louis Armstrong and his all-stars, it was behind the Iron Curtain recorded and he performed on March 22, 1965, so 50 years ago. And this has never been seen here in the States. And so who better to partner with a film screening than the Museum Moving Image, since I can't do it myself here at the museum. And so that's just an example. And it was a sold-out crowd and it was a fabulous show. And we served red beans and rice and sweet tea and some yummy treats for the reception. And our archivist kicked off with a great story of how we got this and why it's still so important today. Um, and those are the kind of things that we do to sort of leverage what the story that we tell further than we can do it by ourselves.
2: Well, that, that's wonderful. Um, I, how do you, I think your point is well taken that uh, smaller institutions uh, should not, uh feel that they're limited simply because their size, they just need to have more strategy and be more creative about how they can uh, uh, go about their work. How do you find your partners?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I like to think that we're for historic house museum, we're extremely entrepreneurial and maybe that's just because I've always gravitated to these sort of entrepreneurial startup organizations um, or programs that needed a voice that hadn't had a voice before. And so I like to think that we here um, tap into our resources. We have vast archives. I have 15, over 15, I think 17,000 photos in our archives of Louis Armstrong. Um, So for example, for Jazz Appreciation Months or Black History Month, we'll, we'll create a limited edition museum collectible um, from our, and take a photo that's never been published before from our archives and put a story on the back of the card and print it out and give it to all our guests. Um, so, for example, uh, you know the, the media becomes my partner by helping me tell that story, this is a, an unusual gift that the museum is giving you for Jazz Appreciation Month, you know, come visit them. Um, certainly for the local press, are eager to share that type of information with the community and showing that they are a good voice for the community. Um, but again, if we want to do a film screening, I'm going to certainly, my first phone call will be to the Museum of Moving Image because they're really good about film screenings um, and any else that we do. Uh, We we like to work with all sorts of partners um, and and to really leverage ourselves and and get that out there. And again, it's all about sharing audiences. Um, Again, just recently The Lonely Planet named Queen's the number one tourist destination in the United States um, for 2015, so we're definitely a go-to destination and on the map. Um, And so all of my cultural partners here are, are working together to tell that strong story. We just celebrated the 50th anniversary of the World's Fair, of the 65 World's Fair, and so there was a nice planning committee here in Queens through the borough president's office to tap into all of our stories and tell how we were part of the World's Fair and how we can contribute to celebrating the anniversary.
2: Oh, that's fabulous, and I mean, you're doing so much. Let's just, you know, get a little bit of perspective here. What is the size of your staff?
4: Hey, well, that's a really- Great question. Um, I'm probably a department, I'm a one woman department of nine, (laughs) quite possibly. We have, I think, five or six full-time folks on staff, a bunch of docents that give the tours and some part-timers that help out as well. Um, So we're all really good at, I'd like to think we're all really good at what we do um, and working together and collaborating. And and there is that that normal growth um, process, that life cycle that you go through with an organization where if I've increased visitorship, which we've done this past year by over 20%, um, that has an impact on how you interpret the site, on how you schedule tours, on how you move people through physically and, and engage with the site itself. Um, the carpets need cleaning a little faster, right? The fish need to be taken care. In the pond, and we all sort of have to make sure that we have good communication, even such a small staff, um, to to ensure that that the baton gets handed smoothly from each of our subsectors. I guess, if you want to describe it that way.
2: Well, yes, thank you. And again, I think that it just underscores your your theme. uh, And anyone listening uh, to the show today or or when they download it as a podcast, from now on, you can never say you're limited because you just have, uh, you know, your staff is limited. Uh, I think Jennifer is expressing something that that is uh, so very important. Uh, You know, size is all in your head, um, so to speak.
4: (laughs) Or on paper, um, and I think social media is such a strong, strong tool for all of us who 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 suffer from from small budgets or, or smaller staffs um, and smaller resources. And some of the big you know, organizations, certainly in New York City, there are some enormously strong cultural organizations. But I, you can define strengths by your size of your marketing budget or by the size of your brand, and it's all about. Creating those sizes and making what you have very valuable and important. Um, You know, you can cut our story different ways. For example, um, we pitch ourselves to the school groups as when they when they study their own personal narratives in the elementary grades or even in middle school here in New York City, you know, this house is a living memoir in Queens to Louis Armstrong. So they come and visit and they can see this place through those eyes. Um, we celebrate the jazz hip-hop connection here. We, we talk about Louis as a civil rights pioneer. We're also a Jet Age dis- designer showcase. So again, no matter what your size, you tap into the different stories that your organization tells and you find audiences there to build them, bring them to you. So as you increase your visitorship, you increase your funder base. That donor pyramid gets stronger and taller, and you have more layers and more resources to tap into. But if you're not doing the work, you're not going to make those new connections. You're not going to get that next grant. You're not going to find somebody who says, "Oh my goodness, you know, we want to we want to help you." If your roof leaks, that's okay because that roof is covering well. It's not okay, but it's covering, you know. 30% of your visitors, which are schoolchildren, um, let's do something to fix that and enhance your growth and help you go to the next level.
2: I think that's a very, very important point, and I just want to have you reiterate uh, that you, you see your, your story, your narrative, going back to your strategy Point again as a, a number of intertwined narratives and that you can then, it sounds to me as if you have found a way uh, by shifting those narratives by responding to the needs or interests of uh, the particular group that's coming through, that uh, I would suspect is keeping your tours fresh and responsive and uh, you're not one of those tours like Frank Vagnoni has talked about, you know, mm-hmm. with with the droning on docent uh, I would think that it would keep everybody sort of happy and, and uh, uh, excited to come to work every day.
4: Yeah, it's a, you know, I'm, I feel blessed to work with a group of individuals that I work with, um, both all, you know, all the employees as well as our docents and volunteers. And, and you, we all bring something here that's very important. We bring our own perspective, period, end of story. And our perspectives, um, are vast. We have kids who are going to college and volunteering here to, to part time because they like to. We have seniors who've retired and who are our docents. Um, we have, we have Folks who are professionals, who are museum professionals, unlike myself, <laughs> who have a much sturdier career as far as the nuts and bolts of curatorial um, pieces go and the interpretation of the site. Um, but you have to bring all these pieces together, um, otherwise, you can't grow.
2: Yes, and I would just take exception to one thing. Jennifer, I think that you are the consummate museum professional. And <laughs> thank you. Any, any museum would be very proud to have you, and you have many lessons to uh, uh, to teach our field, and so thank you for, for sharing these lessons today. Uh, we're going to take uh, another break, and when we come back, we're going to be uh, talking to us uh, Carol Ward about the Morris Jumel mansion and when we come back I'll be able to pronounce that correctly I promise remember your talk you can always reach me at carol.bossert at verizon.net you can uh, reach our guests by going to the Museum Life website and uh, looking up their name or the show and their contact information is there so we will be back in a moment this is Carol Bossert for Museum Life
1: Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety.
5: What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace to speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business.
1: You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at Verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life.
2: Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life, and we are talking about historic houses and more importantly, thinking outside the box. Uh, and our last guest, uh, Jennifer Walden, gave us a wonderful uh, example of how the Lewis Armstrong House Museum does not confine their thinking to the house alone or that box and we have another example that i'm very excited uh, to bring to you carol ward is currently the executive director of the morris jumel uh, mansion museum in new york city and carol welcome to the show today thank you so much for having me Uh, Carol, again, could you just give us a little brief uh, background about your uh, uh, career trajectory and how you got to where you are today?
6: Sure, of course. So I was one of those dorky kids, and I embraced the term dork, that uh, knew I wanted to go into museums and art history fairly young. Um, I was very fortunate that my parents uh, took me Uh, traveling all over and museums were always a huge part of our summer vacations and I sort of had my aha moment if you will junior year of high school standing in front of uh, Ophelia by John Everett Millay at the Tate Gallery in London and I just wanted to learn more about the painting and when I wanted to learn more about it I wanted to then impart that to everyone else so I knew I wanted to go into art history, and I went to the University of Mary Washington in Fredericksburg, Virginia, for my undergrad degree. And working at the gallery there made me realize I wanted to do museum education and educate the public that was coming into the gallery. So that was sort of my trajectory out-of-the-box undergrad career, then came back to uh, Westchester where I lived with my parents, could not find a job as the economy was not that great for museum jobs, went to work at Fortunoff in White Plains, a high-end retail store, and to this day I say that doing retail management in that environment for two and a half years was the best learning experience I could ever have and helped me every day in my museum career. At the same time I was working at Fortunoff, I was doing my first master's in museum education at the College of New Rochelle, and part of that master's was an internship that I did at the Bruce Museum in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is a wonderful community art and science museum. So after my internship there, they hired me as museum educator, and I was there for three years, eventually getting promoted to outreach coordinator. And then I was looking for the next step and went on Idealist.org and found the Morris Schmel Mansion, started working here as Director of Education in 2008, Um, at the same time I was completing my second Master's uh, in Art History at Hunter College, and became Executive Director about a year and a half ago in the summer of 2013.
2: Well, fabulous, fabulous. So that uh, again shows how museum leadership skills can be learned and applied uh, from a variety of of areas. And uh, uh, maybe we can circle back around to that a little bit more. But but uh, first, tell us about the uh, the mansion. Um, mm-hmm. you know, where is it located? What's the community like? What's the story?
6: Mm-hmm. So the mansion is the Morrisville Mansion is actually Manhattan's. Oldest house. We are celebrating our 250th anniversary birthday this year. Um, It was built in 1765 as a summer country house for a wealthy British colonel, Roger Morris, and his Dutch merchant wife, Mary Phillips Morris. And they lived in the mansion for about 10 years. Then when the Revolutionary War broke out, as loyalists, they leave and go back to England. And we are actually also the only surviving George Washington's headquarters in Manhattan. So George Washington, yes, actually did sleep here for about a month (laughs) in the fall of 1776. And then the major time period that we interpret and that people know about is the Jamel period, which is the 19th century. Someone in the Jamel family lives here from 1810 all the way until 1895. And the most famous or infamous uh, character is Eliza Jamel. She lives here for 55 years, dies in the house. Some say that she is still in the house and that she haunts the house. And uh, she starts off life very poor in Rhode Island and dies one of the wealthiest women in New York, outlives both her husbands. Her first husband is a wealthy wine merchant, and then her second husband is Aaron Burr, the famous gentleman who shot and killed Alexander Hamilton in that duel. And the museum actually becomes a museum, the house becomes a museum in 1904. So it's one of the oldest museums in New York City as well. It's really thanks to a very dedicated group of DAR, the Daughters of the American Revolution, members at the turn of the 20th century that uh, take control of the house, make it, quote-unquote, Washington's headquarters. It's all about colonial revivalism in the 20th century. And then in the 70s and 80s, the DAR uh, ceded control to an independent nonprofit, which we are today. We're Morris Schmel Mansion Incorporated today. We're located in the Washington Heights uh, area of New York City. So we're off of 160th and St. Nicholas. Um, So we're in upper, upper Manhattan, but we're literally half a block from the C train, so very easy to get to. And we're in a community that is 75% Latino, um, mostly Dominican. And at the time this house was built in 1765, it was a country house, but now we're in a major urban center of the city.
2: Wow. So... It sounds as if this could be the greatest recipe for disaster. Uh, (laughs) Here you are, a historic property that in some ways has sort of lost its physical context as you say. The city's grown up around it. Uh, I have heard many museum professionals uh, lament that it is difficult to communicate uh, certain aspects of our history to to newer immigrants. Um, I don't happen to believe that, Uh, but I can imagine that uh, you have taken up uh, the challenge of uh, making, communicating, and connecting to your immediate urban community.
6: For sure. And I think because of my background, I always look at it through an education lens and also a public programming lens. I heard about eight years ago when I started here when I went out and just canvassed the local community because that was something right off the bat when I was looking at the schools that were coming as my director of education had, we were getting schools from lower Manhattan, the Bronx, Brooklyn, even Westchester, New Jersey, but the local schools within the areas of Harlem, Washington Heights, and Inwood really weren't coming, and I went over to a public school half a block away talking with a librarian and I asked the question outright, why, why are you guys not coming? And she looked at me and said, no one has asked us before. And there was a the light bulb moment. It was a grassroots situation of canvassing the community, giving out flyers, giving out pamphlets, brochures, and saying, we're here for you. And there's something here that you will be able to connect to, whether that's a school tour, a family workshop, um, lectures. And the community up here is really changing. We have the immigrant community. We also have the you know four-letter word of gentrification. So our programming and what we offer to the community has to vary based on those different groups that we're serving, and to me, I want to make sure my kind of tagline is that everyone has a positive museum experience. That might mean the fourth grader getting to hold a 230-year-old cannonball or for a Latino family coming in and realizing that we do our family workshops both in English and Spanish so they can come in and have the same experience in Spanish that another family would have in English.
2: Those are all great, uh, great examples, and I'm sure that you have more. But before we go on, let's just underscore the most important uh, tool in your toolbox. You went out and asked somebody. You exactly. didn't. It, it didn't take an expensive consultant to tell you to do that. Uh, I I think that that's something that sometimes we we neglect, whether we're a large museum or a, a, a small historic house, and it bears repeat repeating. Uh, and you were also uh, open to whatever that
6: answer was. So I yeah, really and I commend you. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I think you can never be scared of what that answer is going to be. And there are some groups and organizations that, you know, we reach out to, and some people are more than willing to work with us. Some people are still a little bit hesitant to work with us. I still hear sometimes, you know, there's this big white house in a park, and what does it offer to me, and what, how can it connect to my life? And I think that is also a major thing about a historic house is – We can be very static the rooms are going to look the same today if you come and visit visit me and if you come and visit in july so as museum professionals and also some of us are members of the community both living fairly close and and still pretty close i live in riverdale now um how can we make people connect to the site and sometimes it's not the tour that is the chronological tour about 1765 and 1790 and 1833 and George Washington slept here. Sometimes it's about ghost stories. We have, as I'm talking to you, fourth graders walking around hearing about all the ghost stories of the house. And that's okay. That doesn't diminish the history of the house. That's just the entry point that they're going to get excited about the house. That's
2: great. Uh, So how do you keep those, those tours fresh and responsive?
6: I think part of it is having a staff that is up on kind of best practices and latest museum education. We just went to the Nick Muir Conference, which is the New York City Museum Educators Roundtable Conference and presented there. And keeping abreast of all that is is key to me as the director. And then also including things that people might not see on other tours. For us, we've really... Um, done a lot with contemporary art inside the house and specifically the majority of the contemporary art exhibits we're doing are from local artists or artists that again will somehow relate to the neighborhood. So in this case, the tour, you're going to get the history of the house, but you're also going to have your docent or your educator talking about how this art that you're seeing in the house relates to the history.
2: Those are great ideas, so again, uh, just another excellent example of not limiting your thinking either by the physical nature of the house or by its historical uh, uh, n- uh, narrow historical narrative. I think that that is is so very,
6: very important thank you yeah if I can the the most recent exhibit that we have up right now, I'm so excited about, again, being our 250th anniversary. It was kind of go big or go home, and and similar to me going over to that school and and just asking. Um, I'm a big fan of the work of Yinka Shonabare. He's a Nigerian-born British artist, um, had a major mid-career retrospective at the Brooklyn Museum, I think about eight years ago now. And about a year and a half ago, when I was starting to plan the events and exhibits for this year, it was kind of a pipe dream to, to get him in this house. And I shot off an email to the gallery in Chelsea, the James Cohen gallery that represents him, and said, you know, I had seen the works at Brooklyn. I would seen the works at the New York Museum. Would this be something that would be of interest to you as a gallery and him as an artist? And within a couple of days, the owner of the gallery wrote me back and said, sure, let's have a meeting and let's, let's do this. And a year and a half later, we have this major art exhibition. Um, we had a press preview where Burlington Magazine came, The Wall Street Journal came, The New Yorker came. And it was, it's so amazing to me within the eight years that I've been here to see this really positive trajectory that we're on of thinking outside that box and, and getting our name out there to audiences that would never think about coming to a historic house, but again, find something to connect to.
2: That's wonderful. Uh, Carol, thank you so much. This has really been inspirational. We have about three minutes to close, and so I'd like to ask Jennifer and Heather to come back on. Uh, Heather, again, uh, it is so great that uh, through your uh, work uh, in New York, you were able to uh, help these wonderful institutions. Uh, Both of you uh, have had a, a wonderful opportunity Opportunity uh, to work with these things, Heather. I'm wondering if you could uh, give just one more piece of advice to uh, to museums, uh, particularly historic homes, that are interested in uh, you know sort of thinking outside of their box. Maybe they don't quite know how to stretch their muscles yet.
3: Well, I think I think one of the I think the um, Things that we have discovered that can be really, really helpful to uh, museums, and particularly when they're in smaller communities, is if they work with their local convention and visitors bureau, because these are organizations that are looking for cultural assets. They're looking for things to promote in their communities. And the more that um, historic houses can make that connection and be part of those tours, these. Um, organizations, these CVBs are constantly bringing press into, the, into your area. And so it's, it's, it's a good idea to have a strong relationship with them because it just makes what you do that much more accessible to a broader audience. That's
2: great. Uh, Jennifer, do you have uh, one piece of advice to share with your
4: colleagues? Um, I think for, for us, and, and can be applied in all sorts of scenarios, is really that the vision of how do you build your audiences, and I agree that NYC and company is a tremendous asset for me in particular here at this organization. Um, and so the more that you partner and the more that you branch out and tap into resources that complement the ones that you might not have or the ones that you want to enrich on your own end, that is how you can build your visitorship and your community.
2: That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for being on the show today. Uh, I think it's always very good to, to have these, these life lessons, and uh, particularly on days where someone says, oh, you know, it's too hard, it's too this. Listen to this show again and, and get re-inspired uh, to connect to your community and really uh, communicate your passion for what you do and, and your, uh, your historic property. Uh, we will be back next week with another video very interesting program Uh, I can't wait to share with you Uh, until then this is Carol Bossert for Museum Life thank you for listening
1: thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life please join your host Carol Bossert again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.
0: Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com.